This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Thank you for joining us for yet another Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. And I am known as Caleb Castro. Known as, but may not actually be. Right, and I may not respond to Caleb Castro if you uh, call me that way. So what would you respond to? Definitely. Definitely uh, anything but Caleb Castor. That's just something I don't want to be identified with. Okay. Duly noted. Well, what are we here for today, Andrew? Uh, do we have some uh, Bobcasty things to do? What are we here for today? You know, I ask myself that question every day, and I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> getting closer to an answer. I feel like what you just said is a like something that Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh would have said. <sighs> When I was a kid, that's how people used to make fun of me and say I sounded like Eeyore. I'm being bullied on my own show. <laughs> well, no one would have known that if you didn't say it. That's true. I brought this on myself. That's true. To be fair, I didn't say you sounded like Eeyore. I said that's something Eeyore would have said. Okay, fine. <laughs> Wonderful works of God. We came back to that recently. We did chapter nine, and what better thing to do after chapter nine than to move on into chapter 10? So we've been talking. Oh, yeah, I know, right? Doing things in good and proper order. I know. It's almost like we're Presbyterians. Almost. Almost. We're Dutch Reformed. We are above such things. We're not actually Dutch. But we are reformed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's complicated. So what is this chapter? Well, so we've reached now the section of Wonderful Works of God where we're talking about the doctrine of God. So last time we looked at the being of God, talking about the essence and attributes of God uh, as one being. Well, today in chapter 10, we get into the divine trinity the doctrine of one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which Bavink takes up in chapter 10, beginning on page 126. That's a good page. The best. That is that is a page that I would have started with as well, because this is the start of the chapter. So in uh, this introduction, uh, in the, the very, very first paragraph on page uh, 126, uh, blessed may it be, uh, I think one of my favorite quotes that he starts off with is saying, he's saying the eternal being reveals himself in his triune existence even more richly and vitally than in his attributes. A little bit further on, it is only when we contemplate this trinity that we know who and what God is, who God is and what he is for lost mankind. And we can know this only when we know and confess him as the triune God of the covenant, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And really, uh, what a better way to sum up the entirety of the chapter with uh, those last two sentences or so there. Who is God? What does he do? How does that relate to creation? How does that relate to us? Yeah. Now, as we approach this topic, this is a topic that has to be approached carefully. It has to be... Approached, as Boving says, with a tone of holy reverence and childlike awe. It's very easy to go wrong on this topic, either to 
approach it without due reverence and to make errors, which an error on the doctrine of God would be heresy. It would be uh, something that would put one outside of the faith. And it also can be our tendency to try to ignore this doctrine altogether. And there's a lot of churches, a lot of movements today that think that doctrine divides and studying theology, even on matters like the Trinity, it's just academic and speculative, and it doesn't really have any value in, in our present day. So we need to approach this topic, but we need to do it the right way with the right posture as we are approaching no less than God himself. Yeah, and to build on what you're uh, what you're saying there, too, um, that this is not abstract, as Bob Inc. has pointed out, but rather uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and, and what he was getting at with that intro is saying the only way we can really contemplate and know who God is is in Trinity is that instead of being abstract, this is the most concrete and absolute of the doctrines of God, perhaps, in, in saying that it's as absolute because God is absolute essence himself and as revealed in both transcendent mystery as much as he is known by word and spirit. Everything uh, that we are to gather and understand about God for wisdom for life uh, and life eternal is through the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. And if we're worshiping someone who is not the triune God, who is not God as Trinity, we're worshiping something other than God. That's just how vitally important this doctrine is. And at the same time, there has to be both a precision and, and much care, as you were saying with uh, this approaching this in humility, because it's easy to go astray. We take for granted perhaps a bit that we simply say God is, uh, he is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that we say uh, we believe one God, three persons. What is this? God is one what? And he is three what? This is a discussion that took place uh, over much debate in battles against heresy for some 500, 600 years and constantly recurs throughout history. There's been so much theological bloodshed and actual blood in order to fine-tune to get to the point where we could even say the Orthodox doctrine is one God and three persons. And this is where Bovink turns early on in this chapter, a few paragraphs in when he begins to talk about creeds. He first talks about the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed being this early church, early Christian uh, confession of faith that we still use in our churches. Um, at the church I'm serving at, we say it every Sunday evening. It's 12 articles traditionally attributed each one to one of the 12 apostles. Probably wasn't actually written that way, but still is an accurate and ancient summary of the Christian faith. And in it, we confess God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to get to this in a moment here, but that's even the very organization and structure of the Apostles' Creed, uh, as Bob will point out in a bit, but as we'll also find in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Bob Inc. says here in this uh, first big paragraph of 127 that uh, in confessing the Trinity, the Christian gives expression to the fact that God is the living and true God, that he is God as Father, Son, and Spirit, the God of his confidence to whom he has wholly surrendered himself and upon whom uh, the Christian rests with his whole heart. So the creed is a confession of what is to be known or believed in salvation for salvation. 
So the creed itself uh, is the expression of what it is of who we believe God is uh, as he's revealed himself and what he does, as we had uh, mentioned a moment ago. But uh, we're not just throwing around a bunch of uh, random terms. They're very, very particular, very precise. We can't actually go and define God, but we have to describe him. And how we do that, as Bobbing points out, is uh, economically. That second big paragraph on 127. The doctrine of the Trinity that we confess is described as a series of deeds done by God in the past, in the present, and to be done in the future. It is the deeds, the miracles of God, which constitute the confession of the Christian. What the Christian confesses in his creed is a long broad and high history, which comprises the whole world in its length and breadth, in its beginning process and end. So in other words, uh, Bobbink is stating the entirety of the Apostles' Creed is that of the history of redemption, which God has revealed of himself to us for salvation. In fact, in the Heidelberg Catechism, we go so far as to call this creed, these articles of the Christian faith, the summary of the gospel. What is the gospel? We would say in most simplest terms, it is the content that is taught in the Apostles' Creed. It is God and his works of creation and of redemption. Well, and actually, uh, let's go ahead and read that. I think, Andrew, uh, at the very end of Lord's Day 7, question answer 22 and then 24, it says, what then must a Christian believe? So what is it that a Christian is to believe or even to confess? What makes one a Christian? Well, answer, everything God promises us in the gospel. The gospel is summarized for us in the articles of our Christian faith, a creed beyond doubt and confessed throughout the world, which you have just referenced. Well, what are these articles in question 23? The answer is, it then recites the Apostles' Creed. In Lord's Day 8, it then starts off with question 24 saying, how are the articles divided? Or in other words, how is the Apostles' Creed structured? It's structured into three parts. God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our deliverance, God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And with this, you're hearing this confession of who God is, triune, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and what he does in creation, deliverance, and sanctification. And this is important when you get into the top of page 128 and Bavink gets into some modern criticisms of the doctrine of the Trinity. The first one that he brings up is that some would say that the doctrine of the Trinity is of no value for the religious life. So they would say, as Bobbing says, the original gospel as it was proclaimed by Jesus knew nothing about any such doctrine of the Trinity of God. That is nothing about the term itself, nor about the reality to which the term was intended to give expression. So basically... The gospel's not about the Trinity. We focus on the gospel as Jesus said it. We don't need to worry about this other stuff, but as confessional reformed people, we're saying, no, the doctrine of the Trinity, as it's expressed in this creed, is the very content of the gospel. You have no gospel without it. In this way, you, you get two problems, uh, even. Uh, the first is, of course, the projection and denial of who God is uh, as he reveals himself uh, in triune persons of this one divine essence, but also a rejection of the creed or confession, the rejection of the Christian history of salvation, a rejection of the entire sum and apex of 
salvation history and how God shows this. The church is, as Bobby says at the very bottom of page 128, skipping down for just a moment, he says that it is this doctrine of the Trinity confessed in the creed that is the source out of which the doctrine of the one holy Catholic Christian church has grown and been built up. You don't have uh, the church and you don't have the doctrines regarding the church if we don't have the doctrine of uh, the Trinity. And we don't have uh, a soteriology, a doctrine of salvation, without uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Bovink is giving the God-centered dogma here that this is not just a matter of opinion, but this is the teaching, official teaching of the Christian church, wherever it may be found. Now, another objection to the doctrine of the Trinity, this comes up in a lot of cults and offshoot groups that claim to be Christian but aren't really not, and it relates to the objection raised before. Oh, I will say that the doctrine of the Trinity is an innovation of Greek philosophy, that the Trinity wasn't a thing until... Constantine legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire, and then the Greek philosophers got a hold of Christianity and basically broke it. Uh, for one, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, I've read some of their sources where they make this claim about the doctrine of the Trinity because Mormons are not Trinitarian, they're infinitely polytheistic. Um, but they're not the only ones. This claim is rather popular uh, even just among like agnostics and other groups too that deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, even uh, you think Jehovah's Witnesses, which are uh, a modern day form of Arianism, uh, Unitarians, another form of that. You also had though, in uh, perhaps all this is popularized at the end of the 19th century uh, by a German theologian named Adolf von Harnack, who would talk about uh, basically. There was uh, a lot of diversity in Christianity. There was a lot of uh, general opinions and they were all accepted. But the Trinitarian party or the Orthodox or Catholic party basically grew in prominence and in power. And then they snuffed out all the other views that up until around Nicaea uh, were considered legitimate. He uses some of this uh, arguments regarding the terms of Greek philosophy being married with the simple gospel to support his claims, which are just absolute bunk. You can see more modern versions of this, too. For instance, the New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman has achieved some notoriety. He's a scholar at the University of North Carolina and an apostate. He grew up Christian, but has rejected his faith. But he's taken on a similar thesis. And if you're interested in reading more about that, there's a book called The Heresy of Orthodoxy by Michael Kruger, which interacts with Harnack and Ehrman and some of these developmental theories of early Christianity. Um, but basically, we'll just say for our purposes, this isn't true. This isn't what really happened. Right. And we'll actually give a, a bit more of a, a generalized address to some of these uh, issues and heresies uh, in our uh, next episode on the Trinity when we'll be wrapping up some of this discussion. We'll look at some of those early heresies and maybe uh, allude to uh, where we might see them today. With that, Bovink actually gives uh, a direct response. He says that, you know, the, the Christian church, in response to this uh, objection of, oh, the Trinity wasn't a part of the simple gospel or that it mixed with Greek philosophy, the Christian church saw in the doctrine of the Trinity no discovery of subtle theologians, no product 
of this uh, intermingling of gospel and philosophy. But instead, the doctrine of Trinity is a confession which was materially concluded in the gospel and in the whole word of God. In other words, it was a doctrine that was inferred by Christian faith from the revelation of God. All the ingredients were already there. And that brings us back once again to our Heidelberg Catechism. So question and answer 25. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Answer, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. So, basically, we believe this because the Bible teaches it. It's not some artificial construction by human philosophers or theologians. In what you get on uh, page 129, uh, Bobbing actually sums this in a pretty profound way, that the Trinity and the revelation of God points back to the Trinity and his existence, which, in other words, he unfolds in that following paragraph. He's basically talking about progressive revelation or organic development of what God reveals about himself. We want to remember that revelation was bit by bit given and expanded upon to many diverse peoples in many diverse places uh, throughout uh, the history in scripture, in, in the various situations. And God would teach more uh, upon himself and his work, not only of what he was doing in the present, but uh, what he has done in the past, as well as pointing towards uh, what he is bringing about in the future. And in this way, it's not as though in the Old Testament, say, it's not as though Christ or the Holy Spirit hadn't been at work prior to the incarnation or before Pentecost. Christ and the Spirit were always there. It's just that it became more clearly shown and known who God is as one in three persons over time throughout the triune work of redemptive history. But don't just take our word for it. Let's actually present some of the evidence, which Bobbing does in this next section, beginning on page 129. So we start by looking at God beginning to reveal himself as Trinity, going as far back as creation. Now, he points out what's fairly obvious in reading the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, the emphasis is clearly on the unity of God over and against the diversity of the persons. You probably see this most famously in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the Shema. Hear now, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so much of what the Israelites are taught is emphasizing God's oneness over and against the nations, which are often pagan, polytheistic, uh, worshiping the things in creation. There's a need to affirm God's unity and exclusivity over and against other gods. But this does not, however, mean that there is not plurality present in the Old Testament. One way we see this, for instance, is in the name that is often applied to God. There is his personal name, his covenantal name, Yahweh. But there is also Elohim, which is the term used in Genesis 1 in the creation account. So the, the first name God appears as is Elohim, which in Hebrew is actually a plural word. So even just in the name given for God, uh, from the first chapter of the Bible, there's some indication of plurality. Right, and Bavik actually makes a note on this, uh, page 130. I believe this is the uh, second paragraph about the middle. 
Elohim uh, does not, as was formerly generally supposed, designate the three persons of the divine being. Uh, it does, though, in its character as an intensive plural, point to the fullness of life and of power which are present in God. It is in no doubt, though, in connection with the same fact that God himself, in speaking of himself, uses a plural referent, and by this means makes distinctions within himself that bear a personal character. And so here, Bavin gives us a few texts. So, for instance, he gives us Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where we see God saying, as preparing to create man, let us make man in our image. There is this indication of plurality in the Godhead. Uh, this appears also, for instance, in Belgic Confession Article 9, which itself lays out a lot of scriptural proofs from both the Old and New Testament for the doctrine of the Trinity. This is uh, sometimes debated from uh, modern critics that will point towards ancient Near Eastern parallels, saying that uh, these passages like Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 3, and Isaiah 6 uh, are using something of a royal we, or others will say that God is speaking to the heavenly council, the heavenly host around him. He's talking to the angels in the sight and witness of angels, his heavenly council or host. Um, you'll see these in iterations of, of biblical scholars like Klein or Heiser. But I want to point out uh, just a little quote from uh, Sinclair Ferguson from a book called The Holy Spirit uh, in the Contours of Christian Theology series. Uh, he just says that, uh, indeed, while generally unnoticed in the exposition of Genesis 1, it can be argued that recognizing the presence of the divine spirit in Genesis 1-2 would provide the missing link in the interpretation of the let us make statement in Genesis 1-26. So he's saying of Genesis 1-2 that the spirit of God uh, that hovers over the face of the water gives us an indication of, of how to understand Genesis 1-26-27. Sinclair Ferguson says the spirit of God would be the only possible reference of this address within the structure of the creation account itself. In this case, the engagement of the spirit in the work of creation would mark the beginning and end of uh, a bracketing in Genesis 1. So he basically argues that what's of interest here is that the activity of the divine spirit is precisely that of the extending of God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God. And this is exactly the role of the Spirit characteristically fulfilled elsewhere in Scripture. In the New Testament, the Spirit undertakes this role in the accomplishment of redemption. The Father sends, the Son comes, the Spirit vindicates. The Father plans, the Son sacrifices, and rises, the Spirit applies. The Spirit of God is the executive of the powerful presence of God in the governing of the created order. So he's making a case here that is even then a reference pointing backwards to God's very act of uh, the spirit of God hovering over the water and speaking, let there be, creating by the word of his power. That's Sinclair Ferguson, just always telling it like it is. Yeah, so it's a power presence of God. God is involved in what he's doing uh, thoroughly. Uh, he doesn't just pronounce by power, but he makes it happen. He doesn't just speak, but brings it to its fullness and greatest complete end. Uh, so God creates by word and spirit. We also see, even as this revelation becomes more clear in the New Testament, passages like John 1 and Colossians 1 
that indicate that not only are the Father and the Spirit involved in creation, but also the Son. It is a full Trinitarian work going on in the creation. Right. And I, I really like this uh, that quote uh, on that point that uh, you're referencing to, this John 1. Bob Inc. alludes to it uh, on page 131. First, he talks about the power of the word. Yeah, he says that there are two truths in uh, an exalted account of God's works, uh, such as in Genesis 1. The first being that God is the Almighty One who has but to speak, and all things leap into being, whose word is law, whose voice is power. The second thing is that God works deliberately, that is, according to his most perfect wisdom. The word which God speaks is power, but it is also the vehicle of thought. It is the expression, basically, of his most perfect wisdom. But this wisdom of God did not come to him from outside himself. And here's that reference to John, implied reference to John 1. The wisdom of God did not come to him from outside of himself, but was with him from the beginning. He possessed it as the principle of his way before his works of old. The wisdom was already there. It was brought up alongside him, daily his delight and rejoicing always before him. God rejoiced in the wisdom with which he created the world. And that allusion to which he is making there is, of course, God the Son. You can see that more clearly in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Christ is called the wisdom and power of God. Yes, and, and this is also where you, you have this reference of the man of God, the man of wisdom referenced throughout Proverbs, uh, throughout the Psalms. God the Son most fully revealed through Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is the object uh, spoken of throughout the Old Testament. Now, alongside the word and the wisdom, these being allusions to the Son, uh, we see in the last paragraph before the break on page 131, uh, the Spirit of God as the mediator of the creation makes his appearance. So just as God at one and the same time is wisdom and possesses it, so that he can share it and can exhibit it in his works. So he himself is spirit in his being, and he possesses spirit, that spirit by which he can dwell in the world and be always and everywhere present in it. Without anyone having been his counselor, the Lord by his spirit brought everything into being. At the beginning, that spirit moved upon the face of the waters, of course, Genesis 1-2, and he remains active in all that was created. By that spirit, God garnishes the heavens, renews the face of the earth, gives life to man, maintains the breath in man's nostrils, gives him understanding and wisdom, and also causes the grass to wither and the flower to fade. In short, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now, it's interesting he puts this in terms of breath, because the Hebrew word, for instance, for spirit, ruach, is... Uh, the same word for breath or for wind. So there's an association between spirit and with breath. And also similarly with uh, pneuma, which is the word for spirit in the Greek in the New Testament. That's an earlier statement that uh, Sinclair Ferguson had also notes in that same book, Holy Spirit, uh, that it is onomatopoeic. It's, it's a word that is intended to sound as it is said. It describes as it sounds. This Ruach, which we first encounter uh, in Genesis 1-2 of this Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, that which is hovering over the waters. Um, and this, this hovering conveys this idea of shaking or fluttering, which can also be found in things like Jeremiah 23-9 in a reference to the shaking of bones. 
this is far more than an activity of 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 wind um as it might otherwise be translated but it is breath or the spirit that's basically to be understood as a power of god as this this mighty working activity of God. So that, that, that's another way to think about, uh, basically when you read Ruach or spirit, this divine person of, of power and activity of governing presence and whatnot. So we see here this plurality in God. We see the persons of the Trinity, at least in a shadowy form, present in creation. But it doesn't stop there. We also see this in recreation. We see this in the parts of the Old Testament that come after creation and after the fall. And what the way we probably see this the most often is we see the angel of the Lord, which appears often in the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord is the Son of God appearing before his incarnation. Right, like a non-permanent uh, manifestation. He would come and he would go in appearance and in glory, but he would not come to permanently dwell in uh, until the incarnation itself. Uh, Bob Inc. will give us something of a little um, summary or compendium of various appearances, such as you see uh, his first appearance, this first appearance of God in the likeness or form of man uh, in his appearance to Hagar in Genesis 16. Uh, he appears to Abraham in Genesis 18, to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13. Uh, and there will be reiterations of him appearing to uh, Gideon and uh, even Joshua. But Bobbing notes that this angel of the Lord is a special revelation and manifestation of God. That he is clearly distinguished from God who speaks of him as of his angel. And yet, on the other hand, he is of uh, one in name with God himself. He is one in power and in redemption and in blessing, in worshipfulness and in honor. So in other words, he's, he's ascribed qualities or even the ascribed the deeds of God. So noting this, this angel then, if he is to have the uh, honors, uh, the attributes and the names and qualities of God or deeds of God, then he must be God himself as well. It's not a, a blasphemy or heresy to call this angel of the Lord to identify him as God, but uh, just the opposite. It would rather be a sacrilege or blasphemy to not recognize this angel of the Lord as God. Right, because there are things attributed to this angel that are not fitting of other angels, things that could only be true of God and things that could only be said of God. Yes, this angel is one who is working out in uh, giving power and gifts to people, as Bobbing says in paragraph two of page 132. He notes uh, he grants courage and strength to the judges. He grants artistic perception to those who would make the priest garments or the tabernacle and temple. He gives wisdom and understanding to the judges to bear the burdens of the people alongside Moses. Uh, he gives the spirit of prophecy to the prophets and to renewal and sanctification and the guidance to all of God's children. So he is one who is empowering and equipping by the spirit coming upon them, the spirit being poured out upon them. Uh, very similar to what we would see later on in Pentecost, which we'll get at in the next episode. So all of this to say, we see this Trinitarian revelation all throughout the Old Testament. This isn't a New Testament development. It's not a Greek philosophical development. It's here all throughout. You have this angel of the Lord. You have the Spirit of God appearing all over in the Old Testament. 
this is Trinitarian revelation. It's not complete. It's not explicit. It's, again, this shadowy form, as the Belgic Confession says, but it's here. Right. Bavink will, will sum it up, I think, of course, always best. Page 133 and at the top of that second paragraph. This is what we meant by the Trinity being gradually and progressively revealed throughout redemptive history. This threefold distinction within the divine being comes to expression already in the history of God's leading of Israel. However, the Old Testament includes the further promises that in the future there will be a higher and richer revelation. So the activities and deeds of God, uh, though they already reveal his three in oneness, uh, it is not the complete or fullness of the revelation which will be shown in Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. Uh, who is poured out upon us. And so even throughout the Old Testament, there's an anticipation of more to come as uh, you see various prophecies throughout the books of the prophets uh, regarding the one who would come as a prophet, priest, and king, and even as God himself. And that's a good segue, a good point to stop, because where we'll go in our next episode, Lord willing, is we will look at this Trinitarian revelation that comes in more fully more explicitly in the New Testament. Uh, we'll see the work of the Trinity in the Incarnation. Um, we'll see the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll see the personality of each of the three persons expressed more clearly. It's true. So do come back. We promise uh, awesome, uh, neat things to come. Now, we shouldn't make promises we can't keep. Well, I, I, I think we can keep this one. It's, it's, not, it's not us... That's going to really be uh, giving you awesome and great things. And it's not Bob Inc., but it is uh, the things in which we get to contemplate about God. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, so we'll agree on that one. So thank you for joining us for another Bobcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, complaints, recipe ideas, uh, you can email us, bobcast at gmail.com. Reach out on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time... Tote zines. Tote zines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.